0: Well, as we come to the Word of God, I would invite you to take your copy of the Scripture and turn with me to Genesis, excuse me, (laughs) John, John chapter 20, John chapter 20 for this message entitled, The Messiah is Jesus, the Messiah is Jesus. We are launching into a verse-by-verse exposition of the Gospel of John, but we are not starting at chapter 1, verse 1 today. The last few weeks, I've been preparing for this study by studying uh, the gospel of John as a whole. And in the process, it seemed to me that it, it would be helpful for us before we start chapter one, verse one, and work through it verse by verse. It'd be helpful if we framed the gospel and understood it in its biblical and historical context so that we would understand John's purpose for writing it. And beyond that, in understanding his purpose, we would approach it with the right mindset of how it is to apply to our lives today. So to begin with, let's begin constructing this frame and look at chapter chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the purpose of the book. It tells us in no uncertain terms why John wrote what he wrote and what he hoped to see accomplished in the lives of his readers. John tells us here why he included what he included and why he excluded what he excluded. Uh, And this is helpful for us, perhaps even more than the original readers, because It helps us understand why this gospel, as we'll study throughout, is so different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three gospels, as you may know, are called the synoptic gospels because they each provide us with a a similar telling of the life and the ministry of Jesus, each with their own emphases and, and focus. John, however, is very different. John only includes two miracles which are also recorded in the other Gospels. And much of the teaching that John includes in his Gospel is not found in the other Gospels. And there's a lot of content in the other Gospels which are not found in John's. Further, while the other Gospels generally provide a basic chronology of the life and ministry of Jesus, John does not. He only gives us snippets of the three-year ministry of Jesus really focusing on his ministry in Judea and Galilee, and even in Judea, focusing on those times when Jesus would visit Jerusalem for the Passover and particular feasts. Now, why is it that John's gospel is so different? Well, it's not because he had a different perspective than the other gospel writers, his fellow apostles. It's not because he had a different understanding of who Jesus is and why he came or Or that he remembered things differently. Now, John's gospel is unique and is different precisely because of the purpose that he articulated in this statement. He had a a narrow purpose and goal, namely to provide irrefutable evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And the necessary response to that fact is to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And the result of believing in Jesus is that we would experience life. Not just life after death, but true life here and now. But to understand why John is so compelled to to write this gospel and, and how it should affect you and me today, we have to understand the biblical expectation and hope for the Messiah. I don't know how to state this more clearly and strongly and directly than this. The Gospel of John, indeed the whole Bible, will not have its intended effect in our lives if we do not rightly and as fully as possible understand what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. Let me put it this way. We cannot be the people that God calls us to be if we don't fully understand what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. We will not be the husbands, the wives, the singles, the parents, the children, the students, the teachers, the employers and employees, the friends and neighbors and community members and fellow citizens that God calls us to be unless we understand that Jesus is the Messiah. A limited understanding of Jesus as the Messiah limits our perspective in life, our sense of identity and purpose. It makes us vulnerable to depression and anxiety and fear. It makes us short-sighted in our decisions and it prevents us from having the right priorities. We could go on and on to, to see how the, the limits of our life are directly connected to the limited understanding of Jesus as The Messiah really has disastrous effects if we do not rightly understand who Jesus is for the church as a whole. An inadequate understanding of Jesus as the Messiah also is devastating. First and foremost, what it would do is it would lead to anemic teaching and preaching and can lead to false teaching. It also loosens our mooring such that we more easily drift off in our mission and move away from our reason for existence as a church. It causes us to focus on the wrong goals and spend resources on less important things. A diminished view of Jesus as Messiah leads to the wrong kind of culture in the church, the, the propping up of the wrong leaders and the establishing of the wrong ministries. Add To these things, even relevant for us this week, a limited understanding of Jesus as the Messiah prevents us from having the right perspective on politics, history, world events, climate change, and especially matters pertaining to Israel. Without a full and right understanding of Jesus and the Messiah, our thoughts about Israel and response to their tragedies and triumphs will be misdirected. Now, I don't have time to prove all of that to you today, but if you can take my word for it for now, do you see how critical it is that we have a right and full understanding of Jesus and the Messiah? Well, praise be to God that thanks to 26 years of faithful preaching from this pulpit and the teaching that many of you have received from other faithful churches, there's a lot of understanding that we have already. I'm not going to tell you things that you have never heard before, Lord willing. But I am convinced that we have a long way to go in our understanding of Jesus. Why do I think that? Because I know I am not the husband, the father, or the pastor that I ought to be, or that I would be if I most fully understood Jesus As the Messiah. And I think that if you were honest with yourself, you would look at your own life and you would say that you also are not the person, the the spouse, the parent, the child, the employer, employee that you know God calls you to be. And if we were to tease that out as to why that is the case, we would come to the common conclusion that it's because we don't fully understand what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. Few of us serve Christ with the zeal and passion and personal sacrifice of the apostles who themselves could not be stopped from proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. Now more than that, as a church, while I believe that we are a strong and healthy church by God's grace, I'm convinced that there is weakness and immaturity And room for spiritual growth and development that require an understanding, a growing understanding of Jesus as the Messiah. We need to grow in our worship of God. We need to grow in our discipleship of one another. And we need to grow perhaps most especially in our work of evangelism. I'll come back to that at the end. That's why I'm excited to study this gospel with you. I'm excited for my own personal growth. I'm excited for us as a church. And I pray that we will not be the same people and we will not be the same church when we finish our study than, when we, than what we are today. So would you pray with me toward that end even now? Let's, let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, as we kind of launch into this new study, we, we come presenting ourselves before You and we, we sit under the, the Word of God. And it would be our heart's desire that You, by Your Spirit, would take the, the truth that You have revealed in its fullness, that You would pl- implant it in our hearts, that You would water it, and that You would cause it to flourish so that You would save those who need to be saved that You would sanctify and, and produce spiritual fruit in those whom You have already saved, and that You would cause us to be the individuals and the church that You have called us to be. That as we understand Jesus more and more, that we would grow into His image. And that as part of that growth, we would have the heart of Christ For this lost and dying world. So teach us and work in us, we ask and plead. Amen. Let's begin our thinking with understanding the word Messiah. I find it fascinating that the word Messiah itself is only found twice in the Bible in the ESV. Now, the NAS has it several more times because there's a few times in the beginning of Matthew where the NAS translates mysteriously the word Christos as Messiah instead of Christ. And then there's two passages in Daniel where it translates, understandably, the word anointed one as Messiah. But nevertheless, one would think that the Bible would have even the word itself, Messiah, far more frequently. Well, the fact is, it actually is there very frequently. (laughs) The reason it's only used Messiah, that is, a couple times is simply because the New Testament was written in Greek, not Hebrew and not Aramaic, which is uh, where we get the word Messiah. The people living in the first century spoke a mix of Aramaic and Greek predominantly, as well as Hebrew. Some of them, but the New Testament was written in Greek and only on rare occasions did the authors of scripture, especially the gospel writers, quote the actual words that were spoken in their own language such that the word Messiah came out instead of Christos. And so with this, the word Messiah actually shows up over 550 times in the New Testament. It's just that in the Greek, the word Messiah is the word Christos, which is, of course is translated into English, Christ As we'll see as we study in the book of John, the the word Messiah only shows up twice in John's gospel. First on the lips of Andrew when he goes to his brother Simon Peter and says to him, we have found the Messiah. That's also found on the lips of the woman at the well when Jesus is ministering to her in in John 4 and she speaks to him about the Messiah. But apart from those two times, Christ is used throughout the gospel of John and the rest of the New Testament. The word Christ is a title. Not a name. So when the Bible says Jesus Christ, that's not His first and last name. That's His name and His title. And it has it that way 130 times in the New Testament. That's why you often see it reversed. Christ Jesus, as we see it 84 times in the New Testament. The word Christ in Greek or Messiah in Aramaic and Hebrew means anointed one. And just as the word Lord can can refer to anyone who has some authority over others and yet is specifically used as a title for God himself. Anointed one can be used broadly to speak of those who have been reserved and set aside, especially by God, for a special purpose, such as priests and kings in the Old Testament. But it's also used technically to refer to God's promised deliverer. In fact, in his excellent book, The Messianic Hope, Michael Rydelnik commends this definition of the Messiah from the perspective of the Old Testament. The Messiah is, he writes, a future royal figure sent by God who will bring salvation to God's people and the world and establish a kingdom characterized by features such as peace and justice. Now, if you know the ministry of Jesus well, you know that one of the challenges that he had to face was the attempts on multiple occasions by the crowds to make him king. They heard his teaching, they saw his miracles, and they concluded this must be the Messiah. And so they they tried to force him to become king and cause their expectations to come to pass. The problem is there was, there's a whole lot more in the Old Testament that Reveals what we ought to expect of the Messiah. Thinking of John's purpose to show that Jesus is the Messiah, John does not at all in his gospel deny that Jesus is king, but he also doesn't make that his focus. His focus is on other aspects of the Old Testament's teaching about the Messiah. Now, it's interesting as we'll see, or not see rather, as we study the Gospel of John, he does not quote the Old Testament very much at all. Certainly not nearly as much as the other Gospel writers. But his Gospel is saturated in, it's rooted in the Old Testament, such that everything that he says is dependent on the Old Testament's revelation of the Messiah, especially the book of Isaiah the book of Isaiah, has so much revelation of of who this Messiah is going to be that it's often been called the fifth gospel. Well, what is the Old Testament teaching on the Messiah? What does God reveal to us that we should expect from the time of creation until the coming of Christ that his people should anticipate? That's what we're going to look at today. Now, it would be impossible in one sermon to, to work out all of what God has revealed. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of passages. But I want to spend the rest of our time doing an overview of a few key passages from Genesis and on, onward, as well as in the book of Isaiah, that will help us prepare our hearts and our minds to understand the book of John. Now, if you're taking notes, as some of you are faithful note takers, get ready to write Fast, because we're going to cover a lot of ground in a short period of time. And I will be giving Steve Kirshner the manuscript so that he can upload that along with the audio on Sermon Audio. Understanding the messianic expectations demands that we start at the beginning. When God completed the creation of the universe, he did it all in six days. And Genesis 1.31 says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. At that moment, there was no need for a Messiah, a Christ, a Savior. There there was nothing to be saved from. There was nothing and no one to redeem and restore, because all creation, including Adam and Eve, experienced unity and harmony and productivity and joy. But then Eve was deceived and Adam rebelled against God and death and corruption entered creation. As we studied from Genesis 3 a number of weeks ago, or a few months ago, in the goodness and in the grace of God, he promised that one would come who would bring deliverance as a result of the curse of sin. In Genesis 3.15, the Lord says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and And the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And this promise in seed form grows and flourishes as we move forward in Scripture. We know that that promise was understood by Adam and Eve of a coming deliverer because 1,000 years later, when Noah was born, Lamech, Noah's father, said this in Genesis 5 out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. It seemed that Lamech was prophesying or perhaps hoping that his son would be the deliverer of the curse from the curse of sin. Well, rest came, but not in the hope that he had hoped and not in the form that he had hoped, that is. He died just a few years before the flood, but The flood is where the Lord judged the entire human race, drowning everything that had the breath of life except for Noah and his family and all the creatures on the ark. And then when mankind increased after the flood, the Lord confused the languages at the Tower of Babel and separated nations and peoples on the earth. And out of those peoples in the course of time, he chose one man, Abram, to bless. The Lord said to him in Genesis chapter 12, Go forth from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Then in Genesis chapter 17, the Lord repeated and expanded on this promise to include a royal line and a homeland. The Lord said there in Genesis 17, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all of the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This is the Abrahamic covenant, which is stated first in Genesis 12, reiterated in Genesis 15, expanded in Genesis 17, and beyond. Well, over 500 years later, part of that promise was fulfilled. The Lord redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt, and he gave them the land of Canaan. Then nearly another 500 years passed again. And because the the people rebelled against the theocratic rule of of God through his uh, judges and prophets, the Lord gave them a king, which remember he had even promised to Abraham. And it was to their second king, David, that the Lord made this promise in 2 Samuel 7. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall inflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your own body and I will establish His kingdom and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. How long is this going to be? Forever. So at this point in the nation of Israel, in in their history, the expectation of God's people is that he would establish for them as a sovereign and secure nation ruled by a king whose throne would endure and be established forever. Now, this was significant for them because for the 1500 years prior, from the time of Exodus to the time of 2 Samuel, all of that history was defined by oppression and war starting with Abraham running through to the time of David, the people of God suffered under their own sin as well as the sin of others. There was nothing more exciting than the promise that God would establish them in peace and security with a king whose reign would last forever. And the reason it could last forever is because it was a reign of justice and righteousness and power. Now, we don't know when Psalm 2 was written, but the Psalm 2 is is a psalm of the Messiah's victory over God's enemies. And it tells us that the, the reign of God's King, God's anointed one, is not just going to be over His own people, but rather it would be over the world. In response to the kings of the earth who rebel against the Lord and His anointed, it says in verse 6, This is God speaking. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then it switches where the Messiah says, the anointed one, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your heritage and the ends of the earth as your possession. So the Messiah will reign not just over the people of Israel, but but even over the earth. And then in Psalm 110, the Lord adds a spiritual role to the Messiah. It says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So the Messiah will not only be a ruler over the world on a political level, he will also be the spiritual leader of the nations forever. In addition to being a king and a priest, We can go back, we went out of order, but we can go back to Deuteronomy 18 at the end of Moses' life, where where the Lord says this to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now, as a generic command, that just seems like God is just saying there's going to be another prophet after Moses. But in the book of Acts, the apostles use that passage to refer to the Messiah, Jesus, as the prophet. There were many prophets for sure who spoke for the Lord between Moses and the Messiah, but none who were like Moses. And as we'll see as we study the Gospel of John, he is intent on helping us see that Jesus was a prophet like Moses. Prophet, priest, and king. This is almost too hard to believe that any one man could fulfill those three offices, not just in a locale, but over the globe and forever is far too much for a human to have the capacity to fulfill. In many ways, the prophets and the priests and the kings were were anointed ones. They were chosen, appointed by God to, to bring his truth to his people, to lead them in the way of righteousness, to lead them out in battle and to establish God's kingdom and rule over their nation. They were Messiahs with a little M. But clearly they fell short of accomplishing all that God had promised that the Messiah would do. So the people of Israel longed for the true Messiah. The one who would finally and forever defeat Israel's enemies and grant them peace and establish a kingdom of righteousness forever and ever in the true worship of God. And we can understand that longing, can't we? While we have not experienced the thousands of years of oppression that Israel has, we see, even in our own nation and around the world, the wickedness that prevails on the earth. Truth is mocked. Injustice abounds. Immorality is ever increasing and society has been so corrupted that that any leader who stands for truth and justice and morality has no hope of getting gaining influence on the national level. We long for the day when someone will stand up and boldly speak the truth and fight for justice and affirm morality. But even if we could have such a leader in our nation today, we know that that leader would be fighting against a world system that is dead set against such things. Our only hope is the Messiah. The one who will defeat his enemies, do away with the failed human systems, and establish an everlasting kingdom of righteousness. But beloved, we need... More than a king. You could say we we need more than a prophet who will proclaim truth. We need more than a priest who will stand between us and God. There, There is a problem that all prophets and priests and kings then and now cannot solve. And that is the problem of sin in the human heart and the curse of sin in the world. The best ruler and the best system of government will always fail because sinful human beings corrupt everything they touch. And if the Messiah came to establish his kingdom on the earth, we would be in trouble because we would be under condemnation of his justice. Knowing this, of course, the the Lord promised a Messiah who would do far more than rule and reign and serve as a national leader over his people and indeed over the whole earth. The true Messiah would be a personal Messiah who would address the matter of sin in the heart. He would care for the needs of individual people. He would bring restoration on an individual and personal level as well as a national and a global level and this is what we learn about the messiah in the book of isaiah and so because the apostle john relies so much on isaiah for his case that the messiah is jesus i want to spend the rest of our time walking through just three passages in isaiah that establish some of the main expectations of what the messiah would do so turn over to isaiah with me isaiah comes after Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Comes before Jeremiah, Lamentations, and Ezekiel. The Old Testament has incredible, an incredible amount of specific prophecies and descriptions regarding the Messiah. And there are many passages in Isaiah, especially, that speak of the coming Messiah. But my purpose is just to look at a few, three that highlight the descriptions of the Messiah that will prepare us for our study of the book of John. Now, some of what we'll see here just in a few minutes will overlap with what I've already said, but I trust that the repetition will be helpful. You can turn back to Isaiah chapter 9 for our starting place. In his helpful book, The Messiah in the Old Testament, Walter Kaiser brings together many of the passages found in Isaiah to highlight three roles of the Messiah. First, the Messiah will be a king, as we've already said. Second, the Messiah will be a servant. And third, the Messiah will be the anointed conqueror. So we'll use that as our brief outline for our remaining minutes the king, the servant, and the anointed conqueror. In Isaiah 9, we see that the Messiah is king. This is often a passage that's read at Christmas time, but It's really about the future reign of the Messiah. Look at verses 1 to 7. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made more glorious the way of the sea, or he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Every boot of the trampling of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment in blood, rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a son, a child is born. For to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Verses 1-4 to here, the prophet declares that what was once a time of darkness and oppression and contempt and anguish and war will be replaced by a time of light and joy, and freedom, and peace. Verse 5 there speaks of the uniforms of the military being burned because they won't be needed anymore. Why? Because verse 6, a child is born. A son is given. In other words, one will come who will bring an end to the tumult and the tyranny Israel has endured. And on him, and on him alone, the government will rest. The names given to him there in verse 6 highlight his supremacy over all leaders before him. He is, there it says, the wonderful counselor, which means that all that he does is good and wise. He is also the mighty God, which means that he will conquer his enemies and reign with the undefeatable power of God. It says he is the everlasting father, which is not a reference to the father in the Trinity, but it's a title that reflects the everlasting intimate love and care that the Messiah has for his people. And he is the prince of peace, which means that his reign will be defined by unmitigated peace never before seen on the earth. And praise be to God, the Messiah's reign will not be limited and temporary. Again, verse 7 says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. that's hard for us to wrap our minds around the endless glory of the Messiah's reign as king. You know, sometimes we look at a map and Today, and we, we foolishly think, uh, if we're not thinking clearly, that everything that is the way it is geopolitically is the way it's always been. Or even if we have enough sense to know that it hasn't always been this way, we have this sense that it should always be this way. But that's not the, war- that's not the case. The, the maps that we have today are different than they were 50 years ago. And they will be different 50 years from now. We forget that throughout history, nations have risen and fallen. Borders have increased and decreased, and empires have been built and dismantled. Until the Messiah comes to establish his reign on the earth, we ought to expect that maps need to be updated with the constant shifting and changes in the geopolitical markings. Why? Because human governments are anything but fixed and secure institutions. Stability will only come when the Messiah rules and reigns on the earth. And when he does, that will bring an end to the constant turmoil that we see around the globe. But more than that, on a personal level, the Messiah's reign will have deeply personal impact. When the Messiah establishes his reign on the earth, a reign of justice and righteousness, we won't need to lock our doors anymore. We won't need security cameras or alarm systems. We won't ever again shake our heads at political leaders because they just can't get their act together. We will no longer have doubts about the trustworthiness of information that gets spread around. There will be no fights, no arguments among friends and family at uh, dinners, holiday dinners, because of differing religious and political views. Because of the Prince of Peace, our lives will be defined by peace. Peace in our homes, peace in our communities, peace among nations, and most of all, peace in our own hearts. Now, Isaiah says much more about Messiah as king, but consider the Messiah as servant. Turn over to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52, and we'll start in verse 13. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely or shall prosper. And he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them They see and that which they have not heard, they understand who has believed our report. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. And he had no form. He had no majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire. And he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. In other places, Isaiah speaks of the Messiah being the servant of Yahweh by focusing on him as the king and ruler, ruler of Israel. But here... The Messiah, or excuse me, Isaiah focuses on the Messiah as the servant of Yahweh, accomplishing what must be the most difficult task that God would give his servant to do. The salvation of his people by his own sacrifice. It's here that we see in the most graphic detail that the Messiah will not only overcome evil by establishing his kingdom of righteousness, He will overcome evil by satisfying the justice of God in paying for the sins of his people. Notice how chapter 52 verse 13 begins with triumph. Behold, my servant shall act wisely or shall prosper and he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And then notice how chapter 53 verse 12 also ends with victory. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He will divide the spoil with the strong because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Everything in between those two verses seems like anything but the path to victory. This is because the victory over sin can't be won by conquest. It can only be won through death. Victory is defined in verse 11 where he says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. This victory is the making of many to be accounted by taking their iniquities upon himself. The Old Testament drips with blood of the sacrifices because we have sinned against a holy and just God. And our violation of the perfect law brings us under the condemnation of death. And the Mosaic law provided a temporary covering for sin through animal sacrifices, but they could not eradicate sin. They had to be repeated over and over and over again because they covered the sins that were committed, but they, they could not cover future sins or separate sin from sinners, and they certainly couldn't make anyone righteous. This is the problem that all of us face today. We are sinners. And there is nothing that we can do to remove the stain of sin from our lives. And even if we could do enough good deeds or or pay enough money or do enough religious activity to convince ourselves that something that we did has been absolved, the problem is we keep on sinning. And so there's no end to the penance that we would have to do. What all people need is for the penalty of sin to be paid, and the power of sin to be cut off, and the presence of sin to be eradicated. And in this text, we're promised a Messiah who would do just that. He would take the penalty of our sin upon himself, and he would have such a glorious victory over sin that we would be justified, accounted righteous before God, not having our sins counted against us. In the language of verse 7, He is the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Until the coming of the Messiah, the people of Israel were enslaved by their sin, as all people are. For centuries, they were under that sacrificial system which served as a constant reminder of their sin and pointed them to the future ultimate sacrifice but then when Jerusalem was destroyed and the people were carried off to Babylon, they no longer had a way to make those sacrifices. And while the number of faithful Israelites were few, they were still some. There were people like Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael and Esther and Mordecai and many others. Imagine yourself in their position if you can dreadfully aware of their sin knowing that they don't have the ability to, to do the sacrifices that would cover their sin which only compounded the weight of their sin on them longing for the Messiah to come to deal with their sin with His final sacrifice. Or consider your own condition. If you have put your faith in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ God promises that our sins have have been forgiven and we have been set free from the penalty and the power of sin. And yet, you and I still sin. There's not a day that goes by that we don't fall short of God's glory. There's not a moment of our lives where we are perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And even though we know we're forgiven and we're set free, we still battle sin and are weighed down by our inability to live for Christ as fully as we desire. Do we not long for the Messiah to come and take our sin away? Do we not ache for the day when the vestiges of sin will be completely removed from us and we'll not only be accounted righteous, but we will be righteous through and through? When the Messiah comes, we we will no longer battle with sin and, lustful thoughts and desires and wrong beliefs and doubts and fears and anger and depression. The battle in our soul between the flesh and the Spirit will be over because the sinful flesh will be done away with forever and we will be free. If we long for Jesus to take us to Himself and perfect us in glory, how much more must those who have not believed desperately long to be freed from slavery to sin. Isaiah 53 promises that the Messiah is the servant of the Lord who in obedience to God will give his life for the redemption of sinners. Not only is the Messiah a king and a servant, he will also be the anointed conqueror. Turn over to Isaiah 61. yes, I do know what time it is. (laughs) Isaiah 61. I'll read verses 1 through 6. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all those who mourn to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities and the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vinedressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat with the wealth of nations and in their glory you shall boast. Yes, the anointed conqueror will conquer political and military enemies, but here we see that he will conquer everything that ails mankind. Here he speaks of poverty, brokenheartedness, captives and prisoners, those who mourn, those who are covered in ashes, being faint in spirit, living in ruins and devastation. Some of those are specific situations, but, but the language of brokenhearted and faint in spirit and those who mourn envelops all of the human suffering that we experience and its impact on the soul. The curse of sin is found in every heart, and in every sector of society, and throughout creation. And it produces suffering that is sometimes evident, but many times hidden. And it's so pervasive that no one can escape. We are all infected and affected. The world is full of abuse and oppression in many forms. Economic uncertainty and downturns, political oppression, all kinds of criminal activity, human trafficking and slavery, conflicts and wars, earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes. There's sickness and disease that hastens our already decaying bodies. There's broken relationships and divided families. Men and women, boys and girls are hated because of their ethnicity or their religion. And though our experience of life varies from person to person, not one of us can escape the ravages of the curse of sin in this world. Broken hearted, faint in spirit, and grief and mourning are the human experience. But here in Isaiah 61, we are promised a day when a deliverer would come who would bind up the broken hearted and comfort those who mourn and strengthen the weak and release captives and rebuild ruined cities and cause prosperity to abound in the world. Now, because we are so used to the brokenheartedness of our world, it's hard for us to imagine a world uh, free of the curse of sin. But turn back just one final turn to Isaiah chapter 11 to see the description, just a a glimpse of what the world will be like when the Messiah reigns on the earth. Isaiah 11 begins, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what he hears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear will graze, and their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge Of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. In that day, verse 10, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. These are are just snapshots of the reign of the prophet, priest, and king, Messiah, who will not only Himself rule in justice and righteousness, but He will transform His people. He will remove the curse of sin from them, along with removing the curse from the earth. One day there will be true and lasting peace on the earth. One day there will be the, 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 the peace in the world will surround the globe. One day all that is wrong will be made right. And there will be no more tears, and no more hunger, and no more pain. Sin and its curse will be no more. Do you not long for that day? Do you not hope for that day? Do you not ache for that day? The Apostle John wrote his gospel to a people who were looking for the Messiah. He wrote for those who were desperate for Christ to come to conquer their enemies, and to rule in righteousness. And John was overflowing with zeal to proclaim to them that the Messiah that they longed for was Jesus, who fulfilled prophecy and healed the sick and raised the dead and gave sight to the blind and taught the truth. And Jesus accomplished the most painful role of the Messiah. He he gave his life for his people. He took their iniquities Upon himself, and he paid the penalty for their sin, so that forgiveness would be freely offered to all who would believe on him, that he is the Messiah. And having risen on the third day, the Messiah ascended into heaven, where he is waiting till the proper time to come and conquer his enemies and establish his kingdom. But he first had to come to save a people with whom he will rule on the earth forever and ever. Now, most of you already believe this. You can't be a member of this church, let alone a Christian, without believing that Jesus is the Messiah. So why do we need to study the gospel of John? Let me give you three reasons, and I'll put them in in terms of the prayers that I have of what God will accomplish in our lives and in our church through our study of this gospel. First, even if you have believed that Jesus is the Messiah, I pray that our study will give us a fresh understanding of the wonder and the glory of the person and work of Jesus, the Christ. We always need to be reminded and reinvigorated in our thoughts about Jesus. And we always have more to learn of who he is. So I pray that we will grow deeper in our knowledge of Christ so that we would rise higher in worship. Second, I pray that our study will make us more like Christ. 1 Peter 1, 2, 21 says that Christ's life not only accomplished our redemption, but it also models for us how to live as an image bearer of God. So as we see how Jesus interacts with sinners and sufferers, as as we observe his character, as we hear his words and and see his actions, I pray that we will grow in the grace of Christ such that our lives would be conformed to his. And In this way, we will grow to be the people that God has called us to be as we gain a fuller understanding of the Messiah. And then third, and this is perhaps what I'm most eager to see the Lord do among us. I pray that this study will make us more fervent evangelists and that through our personal and corporate efforts of evangelism, we will see many come to believe in the Messiah. What we have in the Gospel of John is a passionate proclamation of the Messiah by a man whose life was transformed and saved. John never refers to himself by name in this Gospel. He refers to himself only as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And because we know something of John's character before he was saved by Christ and changed, I believe John refers to himself that way because he was so overwhelmed that the Messiah would love someone like Him. And that sense of awe does not allow Him to be silent about who the Messiah is and keep it to Himself. My friends, far too many of us are content to keep the news of the Messiah to ourselves. We are so glad that He saved us. But we don't really want to tell others about Him. We're afraid. If we can be honest with ourselves, even as Pastor Leake often said, evangelism is one of the weakest areas of our church. Now we've grown in recent years. The Sharing Hope Ministry, our local outreach ministry, is helping us. But we have a long way to go. We have the greatest news in the world. We have the news of the only hope for sinners. How tragic would it be if we studied this gospel and the evangelistic needle in our hearts didn't move at all? We would deprive Jesus Christ of the glory due his name if we kept silent about his work and his future return. It would be a travesty if we spent months, if not years, studying the life of Jesus and the gospel of John and didn't tell sinners of the forgiveness and the hope that can be theirs if they would but believe that Jesus is the Christ. So my prayer is that the same love of sinners that compelled John to write his gospel, which is the same love for sinners that compelled Christ to set aside his glory in heaven and come on the earth and accomplish redemption, that that same love would grow in our hearts so that we would be passionate and fervent proclaimers of the good news of Jesus Christ. As we begin our study of uh, of, of John 1 next Sunday, may our zeal for His glory burn within us so that we would be His ambassadors in Howard County, and beyond, such that Christ would be magnified and many would come to believe in Jesus. Let's pray. Do this work among us, O Lord. Cause us to know you more, to believe with ever greater conviction to be conformed to the image of your son and to be fearless and passionate proclaimers of the gospel. Lord, would there, if there would be anyone here who are hearing my voice, any who are listening to this recording who do not know Jesus as the Messiah, would you open their eyes would you cause them to see His glory and His beauty? And you cause them to believe on Him and have life in His name? For the sake of Christ, we pray. Amen.